and welcome back to Good Digital, the podcast where we chat with people using digital for good. And hello to our new listeners and social media followers. Great to have you on board. This podcast is the final instalment of our three-part special with the team from the fundraising platform Just Giving. Today I'm chatting to Andy Mickle, who is Just Giving's head of people. During our chat, Andy and I talk about Just Giving's approach to recruitment and how they cultivate an organisational culture that allows Just Giving's team to perform well and reach their goals. Andy also shares some great tips for all of us in the social goods sector so we can make sure that we can keep up with all the changes that digital is bringing. After my chat with Andy, I'll also be sharing some great resources and tools that I saw online this week. Andy, introduce yourself to the Good Digital listeners. Uh, My name's Andy Mikkel. I'm the head of people at Just Giving. I'm responsible for the entire employee experience from the first contact someone has with the business through to when they leave for the final time. So that's a really interesting role in terms of, because Just Giving is very much based around technology, but technology for a mission to do good. How do you find the right people to do those roles? Because the technology sector is really competitive. Yeah, but we're very lucky because we're very much a sweet spot being a mission-driven technology company. Um, a lot of charities suffer from the fact that maybe they haven't been able to invest as much in technology as we have. Uh, and a lot of private sector businesses struggle with the fact that you know, the purpose of their company is sometimes lacking for individuals. So we're able to sit quite comfortably between the for good purpose and the technology. And what are the positions that um, you're actively looking for at the moment? Like more of the skills, actually. What are more of the skills that you think are, you're looking for but you think also are really vital in the sector at the moment? Um, the, the ability to be analytical. I don't mean that in a cynical or just put it on your CV kind of a way. I mean, we're looking for data scientists and not everyone is a data scientist, but everyone who comes into this business needs to understand a testing methodology and I think that's really important for any role in any digital business at the moment, the ability to A-B test and say, well, if I do this, this happens, if I do this, this happens, To it's a more efficient way of getting work done rather than we're going to invest in doing this for six months, it's how can we do this in three days to work out what the best next step is. And with the, do you, I think for that it often, for people, not for organisations like Just Giving, but for um, people working in charities, um, that type of approach is very much an agile agile approach, um, whereas a lot of older charities are very much in a very hierarchical, fixed, uh, more uh, Prince-to-style, waterfall-style yeah. management structure. So how do you actually make that make that happen for your employees? How do you give them the space to be able to... to, to you know, to be analytical and, and be able to do things really quickly. Well, the starting point for any of these things, I guess, is recruiting a critical mass of people who have the same approach or a similar approach. So we actively make sure that everyone that walks through the door has an analytical approach to their work and has an iterative approach to their work. So whilst we're not truly agile across the business, everyone understands that you don't have to get it right first time, that you can go through an iterative process to get it as close to what you want it to be, and good enough is a good approach to work. And um, I've been sat in your office. We're doing this podcast from Just Giving's offices, which is very nice. Um, 
And the way you've laid it out is quite interesting as well as the you've laid it out to actually help people work better together. Can you explain a bit like how you did that and why you did that? Yeah, it was it was very deliberate. We were in an office in Paddington two years ago and we were lined up in a fairly straightforward way um, and we had outgrown our office and I saw that as an opportunity for us to go to a bigger space where we would design the space around how we wanted people to work. So we interviewed everyone in the business. It was a very inclusive process and we said, what is it that we can't do that we want to be able to do? What is it that a new office space could facilitate us doing more of? Um, what is it that we're not doing as much of? We claim to be brilliant collaboration, for example. As we look around the office, what are the opportunities for physical collaboration? And so we designed the office with that in mind. So let's create spaces that aren't desk-based to enable people to work. Working out loud, I don't know if you've read the book, yeah. Working Out Loud, but is, you know, we want people to be working in public. So where we're sat now, it's a bit of a cosy place, but also there's whiteboards, there's books. And we want people to, just wherever you are, you can work. And it's not just the definition of work, shouldn't be when you're sat at your desk with a laptop in front of you. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point to make because I think a lot of people feel that the if they're not at their desk between nine to five, other their colleagues don't think that they're working. Yeah. And I think with a lot of digital based businesses, particularly with social, if you work in social, you're working all the time. Yeah. And so I know a lot of people who work in social feel they feel really resent resentful if people make a jive about them not being at work by ten o'clock when they've yeah. been up all night dealing with a crisis on social media. Mm. So is that being flex- flexible in terms of how people work and how they need to work is... Yeah, I think it's partly that, but it's partly... A, it's the, there's a, an, an education piece, if that makes sense. You know, people need to understand exactly what you've just outlined. So if I'm a software developer, I'm not necessarily developing between 10 and 4. There's things that I need to be doing. And at weekends, I might be working on call, I might be working on... Recovery mode or rescuing something when something's gone wrong, and the business has to understand the roles and responsibilities of the people that work within it, and that the traditional nine to five approach to work is moribund. Yeah, and I suppose that comes down to having trust in your employees that you employ them, yeah. you employ the right person for the role. If they're giving clear, clear enough guidance and support you can let them to get on with what they're doing. Yeah, and it also depends how you define success. So if, if you're an activities-focused organisation and you want to point to how much work people are doing, then maybe a nine-to-five approach is better. But if you care more about outcomes, um, which we do here, you know, if the people in my team get to work at 9.30 and leave at 5, but they're doing everything that I want them to do and they're delivering everything they need to, it's fine. If they're not, then we'd have a conversation. But I think that it's... You know, it, it, it's really important that the outcome of the work is given, I guess, more importance than mm. just the activities. So for charities, particularly like more heritage-style charities, they've been for a long time and their work structures are very much based on sort of old 19th century business structures. Mm. What are a couple of suggestions that you would give them as things that they could start thinking about implementing mm. so they, they can start hiring the type of roles that the type of people that they need for their future. Yeah, I think you know, the, the, the A-B test, iterative approach to work, kind of can't happen unless you've got someone in the business who will do that, and I would urge everyone to try and create some sort of race or competitive scenario where you have a traditional approach to work and a iterative you know, testing approach to work and see which one works best for you as an organisation, but it's not something that you can... You know, there's a lot of businesses that are interested in culture at the moment, 
uh, and culture means lots of different things and actually the way, ways of working is the, is, is the starting point I think for any conversation about culture what is important to you as an organisation the personal people that are leading that organisation what is their approach to work what do they value uh, and then it will filter across the organisation but I think the single most important thing to do is to hire people who understand the difference between what works and what doesn't work yeah. and give them the power to do so yeah and not just to do wash ups and ignore them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I, it's, I've been struck me as I've been walking around and, and seeing this nice little murmur all the time. Um, and you can, you can see people getting up and talking. Mm-hmm. But you also have, um, like visual representations of what's going on in people's work. Yeah. So, if you're in another team and you walk over to another area, you can pretty much see what people are trying to do or, um, what's happening with the business? You've got the the screen that's showing real time, like where donations are pinging from. Yep. Um, how you know, how did you get to that point of realizing that that was needed and and that's you know that type of thing was yeah. what worked? Well, we do more than that actually. So that doesn't work because that's not enough. I, I think what what caused that or what sparked that is. We were a relatively fast-growing business, so we went from 60 employees to 150 fairly quickly. And when you're a 60-person business, everyone does kind of know what other teams are doing, and then you get to a size where it's, it's tricky. And unless you've got some way of uh, mapping work and visualising work, it's easy that things fall between the chairs. Um, so we, I think, spend a fairly large proportion of time and effort in helping other parts of the business understand what different parts of this business are doing. So we... We only, we've only done it once and we're doing a second one next Friday doing something called the Just Giving Exhibition where we have an internal conference, if you like, where people are showcasing their work, um, not necessarily by team, but by project. So we encourage cross-functional work in, because unless I'm proactively interested in what, for example, marketing are doing, I'm probably not going to go over there and say, what are you doing, unless it impacts on my day. Um, but we try to do everything we can to make work as public as possible and make it as easy as possible for people to have conversations and contribute. And have you, are there things that you've tried to do that haven't really worked out so well in terms of, because um, it would be good insight yeah, for people trying yeah. <laughs> So what are the, one of the things that you thought would really work and just sort of was a bit of a damp squid? Um, I think it was, you know, there was one thing we did, um, so we've got lots of windows here around the office and we thought it would be brilliant to have in the kitchen, something called projects, where people will say, uh, they're right up there, I'm working on this project, and here's some skills that I'm lacking in this project, kind of trying to encourage people to get involved in other people's work. Uh, and I had this image of there being you know, eight or ten projects, and someone saying, oh, I'm launching this thing, you know, I want a load of passionate people that are really excited, or want a, you know, a digital marketer over here, or a front-end developer over here, but in the end, it was one of those things that you just had it written on the board for a while, and then nothing really came of it um, but it, it, it's what we do you know, we try these things and if yeah. they don't work then and it what, doesn't and, and with things like that it's often you learn more from things exactly. that don't work than, yeah. than what do what what did you guys take away from that that you that you could that you could actually use that oh okay that didn't work so then this time we're going to do it well, I, well I, I think what we what, what we learned was something quite internal which was how we respond to the requests of people who work here so that was a direct response to people saying, 
uh, I want to get involved in more stuff across the business. He's like, all right, well, let's make that easy. And so as the people team, we try and answer the employees' responses by coming up with these things or providing platforms and making it easy for these things to happen. Um, but I think what we realized was that, that people, when we did a debrief, the people that were saying, I want to be interested, I want to be involved in other projects, were either A, a bit bored in their jobs, <laughs> B, not busy enough, um, you know, or, or C, not getting enough development or training. So it, it, it was a, it was an incorrect response to what we were hearing. So you know, it, in the end, I think we went back and had a conversation with the same people, and we speak to people on a regular basis, um, either through a survey tool or one-to-ones uh, or through exit interviews, because they're useful as well, um, to find out what it is that we can do that isn't that, because it wasn't mm-hmm. that, but that's what we were trying to achieve. And... Um, I know some of my, I've got the listeners to our podcast uh, from right across the sector and like lots of different points in their career. Um, for what do you think are the skills that people need to, whether you're a fundraiser, a campaigner, a communicator, you know, you're, data, you're a data person or, um, or even a director level, what do you think are the skills that you in the charity sector that people need to be investing in either in themselves or for for their teams uh, I, I think applying it to the charity sector would probably be, probably be an incorrect starting point yeah um, because you know, consciously what we did here uh, three years ago or so just, just after I joined was let's consciously not describe what we do as charity because actually what we're doing is we're, we're trying to shift the world in a better place, in a good direction. That's what we're. Anyone that's working in charity or anyone who's working for good is doing that. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's what the skills required to help nudge the world, to help make the world a better oh, place. Well, I like that. Um, and, and, and whether that's charity, whether that's you know, some service industry, whatever it is. Uh, and, and for me, it's you know, it's absolutely analytics. It's storytelling. It's caring. It's being able to, it's being, it's having empathy, understanding what's going on. It's being interested in the world. It's, it's getting out of the bed, and getting out of bed in the morning and being driven by what it is you care about rather than other things. Yeah. I'm reading an interesting book at the moment. I didn't think it was going to be interesting called Shoe Dog by the guy who um, created Nike. And that's a really interesting book because he didn't set out to make shoes and he didn't set out to do any of these things. He cared about running and he cared about people running more. And it's just really, it's very subtle, but it's one of those things where if you hire people that care about the right thing, actually the skills will come. You know, I'm never going to be a data scientist, but you know, what I value and what I care about is is relevant enough that I'll pick up some of those other things. So whilst that, you know, analytical skills, all these presentation skills, storytelling, you know, understanding you know, group dynamics, all of these things are really, really valuable. Um, and that's where I start. Yeah. And on that, following on that, because um, you mentioned one interesting book that you're reading, mm. are there any websites or resources that you would recommend to people go to blogs or whatever that you think are really helpful for people just to pick up on some of the things that you've been talking about? That's an interesting question. What have I found of late? Culturevist is quite useful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, London-based, originally London-based. I think it started a couple of years ago, uh, and it's it's people who work in the London area, and it's not only for good. It's not only London now; it's growing. 
um, but it's people that care about good business uh, and running business in a good way. Uh, and that's a good place to start if you're interested in the, or if you're interested in organisational design, if you're interested in kind of anti-HR, I guess, um, which sounds more dramatic than yeah. It so I notice you're, you're director of people, yep. rather than director of HR, yep. which is a statement. You know, an yeah, organization yeah, statement, yeah I exactly. I think it's well, human resources screams of 1950s factories, yeah. and hopefully, we're not that. I don't think you're that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll put um, we'll put that link to Cultureverse in our show notes, so yeah. people can easily find it. Um, and I think it's been really interesting talking to everyone from like talking to people in different parts of the organisation today, because what you said has come across very clearly in mm-hmm. that, okay. which is good, That's good. good to hear. <laughs> um, and for me, I think, you know, having worked at lots of different organisations, you know, staff all, all being on the same page is really key for them to be working together. Um, have you... Um, yeah, well, I suppose that's just a statement from me, really. But in terms of... Um, there's lots of trends and different techniques and um, in people management that come and go. So, like, digital transformation is a really big thing at the moment, as we were discussing before we started recording, but really it's it's really about change management because yep. it's just digital is actually forcing the change to come through. Um, what are the things that you see as being really useful in that? And But what are the things that you're seeing that may be a little bit overhyped and becoming buzzwords? Okay, in terms of trends. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in my industry or whatever the people function <laughs> is um, I think as I mentioned earlier a lot of uh, companies are talking about that values and culture and I think it's, it's, it's a conversation that isn't necessarily as clear as it could be um, but every company suddenly cares about culture but I'm not sure that they all agree what it means so I think that's something that is becoming bigger and it's a trend and it's a positive thing but in terms of what it means I've been interested to see but I think the the idea of human resources as employee experience is gaining some ground as well at the moment. So, you know, what is the human resource people function about? What does it do? Does it enable the rest of the business to do what it's meant to do? Does it, is it meant to add value? I hate that term. Um, is it meant to create the company that looks, smells and feels as you want it to? Um, is it there for the business or is it there to make sure the employee experience is great? We know that the ways, the way that individuals experience work has shifted massively in the past 10-15 years and will continue to do so. The future of work is probably not permanent work. The future of work is probably clusters, it's probably people working three, four, five jobs at a time and there's probably enough work to go around where you don't care if your project's ending and, and I guess it's our company's going to be equipped to cope with that change and that's what I'm really interested in but I don't think that that's a trend just yet. No, but I think that's a massive disruption that's mm. going to throw a lot of older style yeah. organisations, businesses out because they're very much structured on doing three, four year business plans that have a yearly budget and if it doesn't fit into that budget you you can't change something. So exactly. that's a massive change. Oh, yeah. Didn't think we'd be talking about that. That's <laughs> the beauty about these conversations. They end up in something you didn't think you'd be talking about. Yeah. Um, and I think too that's a parallel to technology where technology is disrupting so 
you know, um, people work on a budget and have a budget for their digital budget. Um, but then if it's based around a particular technology or, or a platform and that platform dies or that mm. platform goes really well and changes what it does, um, are they flexible enough to be able to work yeah, with that exactly. and all have other options? I mean, fluidity is going to be what, you know, companies yeah. that can cope with these things in a more fluid fashion are the ones that I think will su succeed, whether it's technology, whether it's people, whether it's you know, direction. And in terms of, um, do you have a favourite um, sort of example of how someone's used just giving that sort of sticks out in your mind as made you feel happy about <laughs> and proud of working here? I mean, there, there's so many, and, and, and I, I think because I'm slightly separate from them and I don't see them every single day, it's, it tends to be the either the really significant ones that we all uh, visualise or it's the really small ones that are just quite funny. Um, but, you know, it, it, the, the Stephen Sutton one, although it's so obvious, it, also, yeah. it captured so many people's imaginations that I think that was the... It's those ones that, for someone who sits maybe slightly outside of the day-to-day -day product development, that make you kind of stand up and go, oh, this is where I work. This is yeah. really, really special. And does that, when you're hiring, does that help when you're hiring? Um, as I've said before, that tech is, and the type of roles that you have are really competitive. Mm. Yeah. You know, London's a huge startup capital in the world. Um, there aren't enough people with the skills mm -hmm. so how do you find that having a mission-based business makes people decide to work for you as a decide to work for someone who is maybe for a profit yeah. well it's a really useful filter really because it for the right people it's really attractive and for the wrong people it puts them off so yeah. it does a lot of the work for us um, you know, if someone deep down doesn't care about the mission and cares more about earning 20% more then they'll go there and that's absolutely fine um, but I think, as I said earlier, it's the sweet spot between you still get to work on cool stuff when you work here. You know, yeah. our, data, our data science work, our technology, it's its not out of date at all. It's, it's modern stuff, and so it's a good combination of working for a, you know, a good cause and with brilliant people. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Andy. A big thank you to Jamie Parkins, Jonathan Waddingham, Andy Mickle, and the rest of the team at Just Giving for taking part in this special three series of podcasts. Thank you so much for your time. Before I go, I wanted to share some great resources that I came across this week. The first one is Exploring the Invisible by Tactical Tech. Exploring the Invisible looks at how you can use social media for investigations and research on important issues. There's some great examples and guides on how to gather evidence or better understand a situation by using publicly available data on social channels. You can find it at explorevinvisible.org. More Onion has written a fantastic blog post about the role that messaging apps like WhatsApp might play in future online action and campaigning outreach activities. The link's in the show notes on gooddigital.co. And my final share of the podcast is a brilliant piece of storytelling from Marvel Comics and ABC News, who have teamed up to share the story of a woman in the besieged town of Medea as she tries to keep her family together and safe. It's called Medea Mom, and it's illustrated by Marvel artist Dalibor Delagic, and it uses the original first-person story from a woman in Medea as she describes the day-to-day -day life of keeping her family together and safe. 
It's an emotional and really heart-wrenching read, but it really shows the potential of how you can bring people's stories to a wider audience, even when they're in a really difficult situation. The links are on the show notes at gooddigital.co. Thank you once again for listening. Of course, we always love to hear from you, so please get in touch with us either on Twitter at gooddigitalinfo, on Facebook at facebook.com slash gooddigital, or on our website, gooddigital.co. You can also now find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and TuneIn by searching for Good Digital. The Good Digital podcast is produced and presented by Karina Brisby. Our background music is by CDK, and the track is called Lies. See you soon.